0: Everybody, whether you're the president of a company or the paperboy, everybody has the exact same amount of time. You and I both have 24 hours a day. No more, no less. The question is, what do you do with
1: your time? Real quick, my friends, go get my new book. It's called The Power to Publish. And it's at the top of the page of zbooks.co at the link, My New Book. And it's going to help you with all of your self-publishing needs. Okay, back to that podcast. (laughs) Welcome to ZBook's Successful Authors Podcast. And with me... I have a guy that I tried to interview about two years ago. He wasn't a doctor yet. This is the man who killed medium. He got 300,000 subscribers in uh, maybe over a year. We'll talk about that. And he's the author of a new book, Personality Isn't Permanent. Right on. His name is now Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Hi, Ben, how the heck are you doing?
0: I'm just happy to be with you, man. I feel like I'm hanging out in Germany right now. I'm just, 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 just yeah. a total. It's just a total pleasure to be with you, man. I'm with you in Germany at this moment. So yeah, it's
1: cool, huh? The modern age, man. Internet technology. I got a big American flag, but we are in northern Germany. We're having summer-like weather. And what about you? Where are you?
0: Orlando, Florida. Very, eh, let me look out the window real quick. It,
1: it, it's been rainy the last few days and it's rainy
0: rainy today, but it's, uh, you know overall it's good weather here. It's hot. You know, It's like yeah. 75, 80, often 85, 90. So it's yeah, pretty-
1: that's much better than here. But anyways, like I said, it's exceptional right now. And um, I wanted to um, ask you one thing, uh, a tongue-in-cheek question. Just two years ago, You were in Jeff Goins, whatever group. And I asked you for an interview and you never answered my email. I'm sorry. (laughs) So were you at, were you at his event? No, no, no. I'm in Germany. Uh, I was on with his online seminars and stuff. One of my favorite guys and authors. And, um, isn't he from Tennessee or something? Yeah. He's from Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I have an affinity for the East coast and Southern and stuff like that. And, um, anyway, uh, Before we get into the nitty gritty. So I never
0: actually answered your email?
1: Yeah, you know, no, you, you. I don't know if I sent it straight to you. I don't. It was over two years ago. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Apology accepted.
0: Forgive the former version of Benjamin Hardy who dropped (laughs) that ball.
1: (laughs) That's a good point. Well, let's get into that. Let's, um, because your new book. Hey, thanks for the new book. I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked because personality tests is something that I've been into for a long time or, out of for a long time. Uh, I actually have a, um, hmm, a psychology page on uh, Facebook. It's not bad. And uh, so we can get really deep into that. And your new book, Personality Isn't Permanent, is about a lot about this. But one of the, th- the things that really got me right in the introduction, you said you had a story about how you almost didn't get married because of a personality test that was based on colors. And we just had to do that at work. I've got a day job and it just pissed me off. Uh, So can you tell us about that experience?
0: Yeah. And I'd be, and I'd love to hear why it pissed you off. <laughs> you exciting. want me to go first? Yeah. 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 You tell me why you're so upset about this. <laughs>
1: because it's bullshit. <laughs> it's uh, it's a, uh, so you go through these, this big questionnaire, which you're supposed to answer honestly, which they don't know if you answer honestly. I was trying to game the system the whole time because this is like my 500th personality test. So I said, okay, I'm just going to answer all questions. Totally 10 or zero. Yeah. And uh, I tried to game the system. And then they came up with this personality for me. And I was, I think I was yellow. And then I said, you know, I said to my boss and everybody, I said, hey, look, man, personality tests, they have nothing to do with the person. Actually, it's more like how he answers the questions. And then you get this schemata of, for example, Kiersey has 16 different types. And what happens is you're taking you out of the equation. You're, you are now looking at the person's uh, paragraph that might not have to do with them instead of talking to the person. And it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you anything about what, you know, anything really. It's like astrology and it's just fun stuff. And so what happened? Exactly that. And, oh, you're yellow and I'm red. And all the girls said, ha, ha, ha. It's like, what is this? A stupid magazine about the king and queen in Sweden or what, you know? <laughs> Anyways.
0: I love it. I mean, what you're saying is so true. Uh, When when I was getting my PhD in organizational psychology, one of the things that shocked me, not really shocked, I just hadn't really thought about it as deeply because I hadn't been through as many personality tests as you is. So I'd obviously taken the test and I'll tell the story about how I almost didn't get married because of that same test. But one of the big things over and over that my professor stressed was, is that those types of tests are not good science. They're not valid. They're not reliable. They don't actually study personality. Um, and they, don't, and they don't reliably provide you the same answers. Like if a, if, a, if a test is a good test, it has to be reliable. So like if you step on a scale, you know, I'm talking about for your weight and you get different scores, radically different scores every time you step on the scale, it's not a good scale. And so tests have to be good in order for them to be good science. And so my professors told me over and over these types of tests, just ignore them. They're, they're pseudoscience. Um, but people take them really seriously because they give you a sense of identity you you can say i'm a blue i'm a yellow i'm a red i'm an intj you really adopt that identity and then it becomes a fixed mindset but i'll kind of tell you my uh, an initial story before i learned all that this was back when i was this was back in 2012 when i was getting ready to well, i was dating my wife and hoping to marry her but anyways we took that same test we took the color code and basically the score that i got really concerned her family and made them think that this guy probably isn't someone her daughter should marry. Uh, and I'll tell you why. So basically, the color code breaks people up into four different categories. You've got your reds, which are your type A, go, 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 you know, per, you know, power-driven people. You've got your blues, who are people-driven, they're heart-centered, relationship-based. You've got whites that are aloof and kind of, you know, just thoughtful people. And then you've got your yellows that are life of the party, uh, total extroverts. So that's basically the four types of people that that test breaks people up if you're, you know, that's Mm -hmm. the only types of people that exist according to the test. (laughs) But anyways, Mm -hmm. Lauren's family really saw themselves as reds. They're very much go-getters, very type A, and Lauren would be considered a red in that test. Although I don't know if that would be the actual case now. But anyway, she took the, she was a red and she had been in a former marriage. She had been married, she got married when she was 19 and and was in a heavily abusive marriage. The guy was just a total jerk and he was a red. And so all of the abuse over three years kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of the, all of the, um all of the abuse over three years kind of destroyed her personality. And so when she got out of the relationship, she traveled the world for about a year, went and served a church mission. And then I ended up being the first person she seriously dated after that episode. And so when they found, when her parents found out that I was a white, they were really worried <laughs> because they're like okay, I get what Lauren's doing. She was in a marriage before and she was totally manipulated and heavily controlled. And so now she's dating some white who's some passive pushover so that she can be the one controlling the situation because she doesn't want to be back in that situation again. So they were really like worried because they're like, Lauren, just because of what happened in the past doesn't mean you should marry some pushover. Like you shouldn't marry a white because of fear. So they said, you know, you need to marry a real man and it can't be a white, you know, like- And so I was, I thought all this was really funny because like, I didn't see myself that way. I mean, I had gone through a lot of trauma in the past and I had overcome a lot of obstacles to get to where I was at that point. And I had a huge future I was striving towards. I was super, you know, doing great in school and I was moving forward. And so I I thought it was just funny that they, they were only seeing me through that one perspective.
1: Yeah. And so here we have a bunch of non-qualified, non-psychologists looking at a bogus test and <laughs> judging you, judging you by that without talking to you. What a bunch of BS. That's what I hate about it. And now you have these, or we have these tests going all over corporations, and some of them are actually using them to place workers. And, and that's what also bothers me. So let's say you scored a white. Or, and you know, one of the big scales is introvert, extrovert. And so so then they say, oh, he's an introvert. Oh, then we have to put him with other introverts. Or, well, no, maybe he'll do better with extroverts. But people don't know what the heck they're doing with these things. And they're being passed off as pseudoscience. So, yeah, it really bothers me. So what about, though, so Jordan Peterson's talking about the big five. And from the big five comes all of these yeah soido tests but what do you think about the big 5
0: the big 5 is pretty good i mean i obviously know no, i talk about the big 5 in, in this book it's there's no perfect way of looking at personality but the big 5 is the most well studied and if, and you when you take the big 5 there's five different factors but it's more of like a spectrum we're all somewhere on these big 5 you know like and you can move around on the spectrum and you're going to be in different you're going to look different in different situations in different in, in different areas of your life in different times of your life and also you can proactively change on those things and so it looks at personality more as a spectrum rather than that you're overly then you're categorized
1: yeah so that's why you have these big names like jordan peterson and carl jung and from carl jung comes the myers briggs things right and that's where all of this introvert extrovert what was it, INTJ, judging, perceiving. And then out of that, I think Kiersey made 16 combinations. And then, so, I mean, it's like astrology, if you ask me, people want to hear about themselves, it's fun, it's interesting, but as long as they don't act on it, then it's fine with me. But the problem is, I mean, astrology is a billion dollar industry. Uh, uh, personality test, billion dollar industry. Two billion dollar industry. Two, thank you very much. So what the heck do we do with this? Well, I'll tell you kind of, I'll tell
0: you why these tests are problematic. Um, firstly, the reason people love them is because they do give people a sense of identity. If you haven't taken the time to, to clarify who you want to be and taken the time to define your past and your future, because really identity is shaped by stories. It's shaped by the story you tell. And if you haven't taken the time to really clarify who you are, then these tests can give you a a fast food identity. Like they give you an identity where you're like, you know, you can explain yourself and it's really important to be able to explain who you are to other people. So if you can say, I'm a white, then people can, then, then you can, you're basically describing yourself to other people so that people can know who you are or at least get a snapshot of who you are. So that's why people like them is because it's an easy way to have an identity. Um, The big problem, and there's a lot of research on this is mindlessness so ellen langer she's been at harvard she studied mindfulness for about 40 years and she she's found over and over that people who overly assume a label they become very mindless to all of the times when the label is not true so if someone thinks that they're depressed they think that they're always depressed Hmm. even though it's not actually true throughout the day there's going to be many episodes where they're actually happy but they don't pay attention to those because you see the world through the filter of of your identity and so if that's a big aspect of your identity, that's all you'll see. In psychology, we call that selective attention. So it's like when you buy a new car. When you buy a car, you'll see that car everywhere, right? Yeah. But you yeah. won't see all the other cars. You won't pay attention to those other cars because they're not, they don't seem relevant to you. You can only take in so much information. And so with labels is all you see is the label. And then what you end up doing because you've owned it as a part of your identity is you try to confirm it. You try to confirm your bias and you become very non-flexible to any situation that's outside the label. <laughs> and so your whole yeah. goal is to confirm the label and to prove that this is your identity and you become overly committed to it. And where the research is now in, in personality and identity is, is the, there's a few big important ideas. One is, is that your current self is not the same as your former self. Like I'll just use you as an example. Do you think you're the exact same person you were 10 years ago? Oh no, no. <laughs> definitely not well that you know what's funny about that is, is that everyone says that mm-hmm. um, and so if you're not the same person you were 10 years ago you wouldn't have gotten the same score on any of those tests 10 years ago uh, in fact what the research shows nowadays is that for example there's one study where one group of participants took the same personality test twice they took the same test once and then like a week later they took it and there was the same test administrator and in that situation the people got a pretty similar score it was only a week later the other group took the same personality test, same time frame, about a week. But the only difference was is that there was two separate test administrators giving them the <laughs> test. And in that situation, the scores were completely non-correlated. And so this just shows that small situational factors can lead to big changes in how you answer these tests. But not only kind of going back to the idea that you're not the same person you were 10 years ago, you're also not going to be the same person in 10 years from now. Like in 10 years from now, your future self is going to be a different person. They're going to be in a new situation, have different perspectives, probably different goals, um, different priorities. And so if your future self is a different person, and Hal Hersfield, he's at UCLA, he talks about how it's really good for decision making to have a future self. If you have a future self concept, the person you want to be and the person you aspire to be, you can then make better decisions here and now. And in fact, it's actually impossible to make high quality decisions today if you don't know who you want to be in the future.
1: So, So how does this work?
0: Well, let me, well, let me explain this. Think about it. (laughs) Well, first off, the main point I'm trying to get here is this. If your future self is going to be different, then you shouldn't overly define your current self. Because if you're overly defining your current self, then what you've done is, is you've limited your future self. You assume if you've overly defined yourself that you're always going to be this way. Mm -hmm. And the truth is is that your future self not only is going to be different, but they can be different. But you have to take the time to define your future self. So what what do you want to know?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay. So how would you do this? Um, You said about making a decision, like in the decision-making process. Well, so Um, put it this way. Put it this way. If you
0: don't know who you want to be in the future, mm -hmm. does it really matter what you do today?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I see the point. You could
0: spend your time in any way you want today. There would be no way to make deliberate decisions today if you don't have a goal. Honest, if you don't know who you want to be in the future, then it doesn't matter who you are today. So it's, it's very difficult to make high quality decisions today if you don't know where you want to go in the future. So Hal Hirschfeld would say, rather than asking what you want to do today, it's better to ask what your future self would want you to do.
1: You know, ah, because, that's a good one. Yeah, Yeah,
0: because think about this. Like Just a few days yeah. ago, I, I went home from work and my, my eight-year-old son wanted to go swimming. We live in Florida. We've got a pool. and he was And I was tired. I was fried from a days of work and he said dad let's go swimming and i i didn't really want to go swimming to be honest with you <laughs> like i was tired and so i was like i'll just watch you like you just jump in the pool and i'll watch and and he was like dad dad let's swim and and the thought came to me how would my future self want to remember this situation you know what i mean like do i want to if i was watching this episode from the future would i want to watch myself sitting and watching my son play while he's begging me no i wouldn't and mm-hmm. so it's rather than doing what you prefer in the moment it's better to think what would your future self prefer and when you start making situ- decisions from that perspective, you can start living from intentionally and living based on kind of towards your future. Whereas I would say most people who are not living intentionally, they're living as a repeat of the past.
1: Sounds like a lot like astrology. Yeah, <laughs> that does. And yeah, I have a lot of um, experience with astrology because my, my dad was into it. So I grew up with it. And you you just described it like perfectly how people have this fast food definition. That's a good keyword, by the way, of themselves. And then they, they, they limit themselves with this definition. And, and not only that, but I think you alluded to it too, how if you read something, then you start doing that instead of the other way around. You know what I mean? Um, you had a psychological term for it, but I've heard the other one, reticular activation system what you you called it a bias or something what was it
0: uh, are you talking about confirmation bias
1: no uh, uh so, something similar you just said it two minutes ago and now i forgot it um are you talking about selective attention that's the one that's the one
0: yeah 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 yeah, yeah we go through that um future self though i mean think about it. this 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 is just a concept you you yourself come up with so what they say the number one deathbed regret that people have is is that they didn't have the courage to be who they wanted to be. Instead, they lived up to the expectations of those around them. Mm -hmm. So when you define a future self, it's not like you're trying to discover yourself. It's literally just you choosing who you want to be. Like I can take the time in my journal to write, I want to be an excellent father. I want to be a best-selling author making millions of dollars. Like you can take the time to make decisions about who you want to be and you can use that future self as the metric for what the decisions you make here and now. Like there's nothing that... um, that to me is not necessarily like a horoscope.
1: Yeah, let's take that one a little deeper uh, from your book, how past traumas negatively shape personality and how to reframe those traumas and change your Mem- memories and identity narrative storytelling, right? Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah.
0: So trauma <laughs> is essentially any, any experience that shapes how you view yourself. Uh, it could be a big event. It could be a small event. In the book, I break down a lot of what's called math trauma. So a lot of people in the U.S., probably Germany as well. I'm not really sure. Math
1: a trauma? Lot of... math? Yeah. Well, math yeah, or math? Math. Uh, math. I haven't heard that. <laughs> Proceed. <laughs> well, let's
0: just put it this way. Um, like you can develop trauma from any episode. It's just, it's basically an, an event or an experience that shapes how you see yourself. So like if, if you're studying, if you're like, let's just say you're a student in math and someone tells you you're not good at it, like a teacher could tell you that, or you fail a test, yeah. you could form a, a narrative in your mind that you're not good at math. And when you have a narrative like that based on an emotional experience and you haven't taken the time to reframe it, you haven't gotten encouragement or support. So there's a really good quote from Peter Levine. He wrote a book, waking the tiger healing trauma is a trauma expert and he said the trauma isn't what happens to you it's what you hold on the inside in the absence of an empathetic witness Hmm. so basically you know you could you could conceivably fail at something or not or, or or have a bad experience and form the idea in your mind that you're not very good at this so in the book i actually share the the experience of a distant relative of mine who was really smart actually she went to yale Uh, for her undergrad Cornell for her masters was really good at writing and wanted to write kids books and so she took a private private um, art class like when she was in her 30s because she wanted to start living that dream and in the private art class there was probably like six other students and she had an episode where they were doing some exercise and the teacher started correcting her like her art like on her easel pad in front of everyone and it wasn't that big a deal but while he was correcting her work, she was very embarrassed. This, per, this person I'm talking about was really embarrassed. And so in her head, the thought came up, I'm not good at this. I can't do this. And so as a result, she never actually, she never went back and she never pursued that dream. And now fast forward, that was like 40 years ago. She still wishes that she could do art, but she genuinely believes that she can't. And she's still defined by that prior experience. And so what basically the idea of trauma is that whatever happens, when it occurs, you have a frozen personality. You're stuck in the experience as it occurred. You haven't taken the time to reframe it. And so you're defined by the past. And what trauma does is it shatters your hope, your flexibility, and your imagination. And, if, and it basically shrinks your comfort zone. Like you become emotionally rigid. So you're not willing to deal with the learning process. Instead, because you've committed to the idea that you can't do it, you
1: don't. It's essentially a fixed mindset. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I like what you said there. You're, you're frozen. In that's, your... what the, that's what Bessel van der Kolk called
0: it. He wrote the book yeah. called The Body Keeps the Score. It's the definitive book <laughs> on trauma. And he wow. says basically trauma freezes your personality. Because wow, you're never that... supposed to stop developing. You know? Yeah, yeah. Your personality develops as, your emotion, as you become more and more emotionally mature. But if, you're, if you've defined yourself by prior traumas, then you haven't developed emotionally. You could still be... Emotionally, like age twelve, and you could be chronologically like in your thirties, forties, or fifties. Wow!
1: Yeah, that's interesting. That's pretty hardcore. That's why people should buy your book, right?
0: <laughs> well, there's about in, in this book, there's about 150 journal prompts um, for reframing trauma. I mean, think about it. Memory is really all about meaning. You know, so so think about it. This lady who had that experience, she she emph- she created the meaning of that experience that mm-hmm. she's not good at. at That was the meaning she took out of that experience. Hmm. Um, She didn't have to create that meaning and she could have reframed that meaning if she would have gotten help talking about it with someone else or if she was really committed to her goals, she could have. I mean, there's, so the past is really about meaning. It's not objective. None of us see the past from an Mm -hmm. objective perspective. It's just like when you read World War II texts, right? Like from an American perspective, it's one way, from the German perspective, it's one way, from, you know, it's Mm -hmm. all a perspective. And so if you're viewing it from the same perspective as the time the event occurred, then that means you're not viewing it from a more mature perspective. Like as an example, you know, my parents got divorced when I was 11. My father became an extreme drug addict. Of course, at age 11, I'm shaping meaning and I'm shaping ideas about who I am and what the world's like when I'm an 11-year-old kid watching this happen. The 32-year-old version of me doesn't need to see the world or see even those events the same way the 11-year-old version did. And I shouldn't see the events the same way. I should be able to shape different meaning from my former experiences than my 11-year-old self did, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the idea is just reframing and choosing how you want to see the past and shaping the narrative that way versus continuing to be defined the same way by an event that could have happened years ago.
1: So you touched on it a minute ago. Is journaling part of the process? And you, I didn't get to that part in your book yet with the prompts. Journaling is have- a
0: very big part of the process. Yes. Tell us your a process.
1: About-
0: <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of it's about, you know, first off with trauma, one of the reasons why it doesn't evolve or doesn't get reframed is because you avoid thinking about it, Mm -hmm. or maybe you keep thinking about it the same way. So one of the great ways, one of the things that journaling does is it allows you to get it out of yourself and on paper so that you can actually see it and begin to start to transform it. I mean, once Mm -hmm. you can, once it's out of you and you can see it, you can start to reshape it. Just like when you've talked to other people, like once it's out and you can start to think about it differently and hear yourself saying it you can start to maybe question it. Mm -hmm. And so journaling is just a really great way of, and it's a safe environment. Usually it's by yourself. You know, you can throw away the journal or burn it if you want, or just whatever you want to do with it. But just writing about your experiences is great, but then using it as a tool for asking yourself different questions. For example, maybe like, how would someone else see this? Or like, what is the benefits that have occurred from this? Why will my life be different because of this? How would my future self see this? You can start to choose different angles on how you want to see these former experiences so you can start to shape the meaning. But you can also use your journal, obviously, as a tool for goal setting, uh, mm-hmm. You know, framing out your future self as an example. Um, I mean, so there's, there's a lot of amazing ways that you, I would challenge people to use their journal on a daily basis. You know, like I think that journaling, even for like five to 15 minutes is a rule really good tool for decision making for clarity for meditation It's just a great tool for for getting clear
1: do you journal at at night or in the morning i personally prefer
0: journaling in the morning but i think that there's benefits either way Mm -hmm. your brain's a little bit different in different situations in the morning i think you you could be a little bit more creative in the evening i think you're a little bit more analytical
1: yeah i've tried several different methods and um haven't really found one that I really like. I've heard of morning pages and and then, or what? write down what's story worthy. I make a happiness journal and that one works really well. If you get your family to do it with you, it works really well. At, that sounds awesome. Yeah, the end of the day, you, you what made you happy? That's all, you know, but I you have how great. many- That's a great way to frame the day. Yeah, yeah, but the trick is you got to get your family to do it with you. So but that's what most people don't think about journals. Uh, I think,
0: I think getting the family involved is great. I mean, see what you're proactively doing with that strategy is choosing how you'll remember and frame the day. Yeah, exactly. You're saying why, how about we remember, how about we remember today in a good way? What are three things that are great that made us happy? Yeah. Then, then you've coded the day as a great day rather than not proactively coded it at all.
1: Yeah, exactly. And um, so how many prompts do you have in your book?
0: Probably about 150 questions. Nice. Yeah, There's a lot of different things throughout the book as far as uh, like, I'll give you, I'll, sh- I'll show you an example. So in the book, you'll, you'll see like, you see where the gray box is. Yep. Yeah. So there's just different uh, there's different sections where you can just go through different questions. Here's like a big one on future self as far mm-hmm. as just sketching out what you're, mm-hmm. you know, cool. You know, who do you want to be in three years from now? How much money are you making? Who are your friends, et cetera. Like, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of different ones. Um, when was the last time you did something for the first time? Obviously hmm. personality becomes increasingly stable for people if they stop doing new things. <laughs> when yeah. was the last time you did something unpredictable? When was the last time you put yourself in a new situation or a new role? Are the clothes in your closet the same ones that you've been wearing for the last 5 years? <laughs> Stuff like that, you know. There's just a lot of good questions throughout the book. Yeah.
1: Cool. Yeah, I mean uh, I respect your time. I could talk to you for 2 hours, but um, I could go, you don't want to go for another 10? 10 hours? No. <laughs> yeah, let's go for another five hours, actually. <laughs> no, that's why I'm, I'm looking through my questions. I, I, got, I got like two or three that I just got to, I, I have to ask you. Let's do it. Okay. So one of my favorite quotes from your book is, I came to grasp just how finite life is and how coddled many are from the realities of the world.
0: Why did that stick out to you personally?
1: Uh, It was the coddling and the the fake news going on nowadays. And um, I'm kind of older. And so I'm just, uh, I, um, I grew up, my dad is German and my mother is American. And I grew up and we never voted Democrat or Republican. We were always like looking at the third way and we were always questioning authority. (laughs) And so when I look at people nowadays and they're totally, you know, one side or the other, and it's like, man, you guys, you guys both believe your BS and it's both BS. Yeah. And so I had a different viewpoint from the very beginning. And I thought that everybody would wake up in 2016 where the media has been blatantly lying to people. And now people choose to believe the people that have been lying to them. And they're yeah. not waking up. And I, hey, wait a minute, guys, wasn't 2016 a massive wake-up call? But no, I guess not. And so that's why that stuck out to me.
0: <laughs> well, one thing that's really interesting about this section, uh, there's a section in the book where I talk about how most people, a lot of people think that personality is your true and authentic self. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, you should only do things that are comfortable or easy for you. And that you should avoid things that are unnatural to you. And so there's, there's a lot of people in America, a lot of teenagers in America now who are boycotting the idea of doing in-class oral presentations because it's something that's too hard or it's uncomfortable or it's scary or it's, it's awkward. And so, yeah, people are becoming increasingly non-flexible in what they're willing to do. They're overly, you know, they're demanding that they, they have everything catered to what's easy to them or what they see to be their, core, their natural strengths. They're not willing to put themselves in new and difficult situations which would obviously help them build more confidence and capability and flexibility. Instead, they're overly defining what they can do based on where they feel right now. So there's, there's no goals. There's no, yes. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of non-flexibility and a lot of coddling that's happening in the world today. I mean, for myself, like this is why I think future self is so important is it's the idea that your, your current self has preferences and priorities. Your former self did as well that are now different from who you are today, but your future self is going to have different preferences and priorities than you have today. And so like when I was, when, when my wife and I, cause during my first year of my PhD program, I, uh, we became foster parents of three kids I, you know, just straight up. We had zero yeah. kids and we went to from zero to three and boom. And these three kids came from a pretty rough background. I mean, there was a lot of crazy behavioral and emotional issues that we had to deal with. And just to be honest with you for the first probably year, I didn't necessarily want to deal with it. Like it was my wife's, my wife's desire. It was our shared decision. And obviously together we wanted to have kids and stuff. We had a shared future and you know, goals and stuff like that. But I basically I, I had to learn how to want it and, and, and like, And I did, you know, over time I began to invest in it. I began to, you know, because the future me was someone who I saw as a good parent and stuff like that. But the current me at the time was someone who truth be told, just wanted to like watch YouTube videos and, you know, go to school and stuff like that. And so I had to, I had to learn to change my preferences and my priorities. And I did over time. I mean, over now over five years, you know, we now have five kids. I don't see the world the same way I did five years ago. You know, my goals are different. My situation's different, you know, and it, and it was not easy. You know, if I would, you know, it was very unnatural, very difficult for me. But I obviously, if you can imagine going through the process for three years of fostering and then yeah. fighting the court and system, I mean, this stuff cha- changes your views and it yeah. makes you more adaptive, more flexible. Um, but it also just, it really changes how you view things. And if I just did, if I just, did things that were easy or that were natural. I because I think another way of describing personalities is it's essentially your comfort zone. You know, mm-hmm. it's what you feel safe doing every time you step out of your comfort zone, you're stepping outside your personality. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if you're always just living within that, you're not going to learn much in life.
1: Hmm. If you don't mind, I have to ask a couple uh, questions about medium.com.
0: Let's do it. Let's talk about writing since that's what you really want to talk exactly, about. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, no, I, I do both. I do both. Like I said, I have an, a, a, a psychology blog too. But anyway, um, yeah. So how did you kick medium's ass so hard? 300,000 subscribers. How do you do it?
0: I actually had over 800,000 people opt into my blog over about three and a half, four years. Um, wow. And when you were Jeff Coin's
1: webinar, you only ha- only <laughs> only had well, one hundred thousand. Well, I don't
0: have eight hundred thousand emails now. I'm saying I've had over the years eight hundred thousand yeah. people opt in. You know, more yeah. than half of those have opted out over the years. Mm. But um, yeah, it it was a crazy journey. The website's not as valuable as it used to be. Uh, mm. You can't really game it anymore. They very much control the environment now, um, and they they really regulate it, and they don't let you do any marketing on the platform anymore. For, so for a long time, I would. You know, you already kind of know this sounds like because you were listening to the comments, but like at the end of my articles, I'd send people to a landing page, give them a free giveaway and get emails. You can't do Mm. stuff like that on Medium anymore. No, they don't want you to do stuff like that on Medium. Mm. They will pay people for clicks. So you can, you know, the top maybe 20 writers on Medium, I think are making about 10,000 bucks a month, you know, on clicks, but they're not getting any emails. And so Mm. they're essentially just, Mm. you know, employees to Medium, essentially, they can feel cool about themselves because they're making a living as a writer, but they're not going to build a career that way. They're not going to be able to get a Mm. book contract that way. Yeah. And so from my perspective, it's important to write on platforms, whether it's your own platform or other platforms where you can still send people to a landing page and get email subscribers because email subscribers are still the name of the game as far as selling courses or just getting book contracts, having a relationship Mm -hmm. with people. So, but yeah, how I mean, how I did it just to break it down really simply, I had a future self in 2015. That's when I started writing. Online, and I did it. I'm very big on the goal shapes the process. Mm-hmm. A lot of writers say focus on the process. I think it's garbage. I think that you focus on the goal and you determine the process that will get you mm-hmm. the goal. In psychology, we call that deliberate practice. And the only way to deliberately practice is if you have a clear future self. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I started blogging in 2015, I was very clear that I wanted to get a six figure book deal with one of the big five. And so I reverse engineered that process. I, I asked a lot of people, How do you get a six figure book deal with one of the big five? And everyone that I asked, agents, authors, stuff like that. I mean, I asked, educated myself before I ever really started. And I learned you have to get 100,000 email subscribers. Holy (laughs) cow, how do you do that? Well, you got to start writing blogs and you got to get people to sign up for your form and stuff. And so I learned all this stuff. And then I decided, well, if I'm going to get 100,000 email subscribers, I need to learn how to write blogs that get read by millions of people. So I had to learn how to write viral headlines. I took the uh, the course from John Morrow, you know, that taught me how to. Oh, yeah write uh, headlines and how to pitch mm-hmm. my articles. And so I, I, I learned how to write articles that got read, you know, because mm-hmm. I was committed to my goal. And when the articles didn't work, I'd change my process. I was never committed to a process. And as a mm-hmm. writer, what got you here won't get you there. That's why I stopped writing on Medium as much is because it stopped being a process worth doing.
1: Interesting. I, I heard another hack was you have to get on a publication to get some publication in Medium uh, that is true.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. publications really matter, you know, mm-hmm. and th- because they've got followership and things like that. And so you want to do everything you can, obviously to. Any tricks to getting speaks. on a
1: publication?
0: Probably just ask the editor if you can. I mean, obviously it's got to be <laughs> just ask. relevant. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta pitch them articles. I mean, it's, yeah. you yourself yeah. could, you know, I mean, I, you, it's the same thing as trying to pitch an article onto the New York times. Hmm. You can, if you're not pitching, then you're not, you, you know, you miss every shot you don't take. So you got to send yeah. an email with an article and say, Hey, I'd love this to be on your platform.
1: I'm still putting my links to my subscribe pages and landing pages in there, but I'm a, you know, I'm not, uh, have a, a huge following in medium. So they I'm under the radar now, you know, <laughs> but, um, how did you get yeah. all of those cool editorial reviews for your book? Like from Seth Godin and, um, my favorite one here is, um, uh, Tucker Max, where he says, "Best part, this is the book that destroys all those useless personality peddlers that infect the world." <laughs> That's cool.
0: Yeah, I asked for him. You know, I, would, right I would send people the PDF of the book and say, "Hey, if you like this book, would you mind giving me a, a blurb?" Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said no, and those are the people that said yes.
1: Cool. I'm going to change my format on the fly because we're so spontaneous. Do you have time for another question? Of course, brother.
0: Loving being with you. Yeah.
1: What would your future, what would your today self say to your past self 10 years ago?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. And, I, and I would invite you to think about the same question, but your future self, what would your future self say to you today? Right? But yeah. yeah. What would I say to myself t- 10 years ago? So 10 years ago, actually, it's a brilliant question for me, because 10 years ago I just gotten home from a ch- church mission And uh, at that time, even, I wanted to be a writer. I actually wrote an article about this just barely. The article was, over, you know, over how to overcome the fear of being wrong. Um, So I served a church mission from 2008 to 2010. And I got home from that in January of 2010. So this was exactly 10 years ago, you know, a little over 10 years ago. Yeah. And at that point, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't start for five more years. And so I think of what I would have, and the reason I didn't start is because I took way too much time overthinking the direction I would go. And so what I would tell myself is, you know, you've got everything you need to start now. You need to start now. Like, I think if I would have started five years earlier, I would have probably had a few more books out and stuff like that. And so I, I would tell that person to, to start and that the sooner you start, the better things will be. Um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I would have started, if I would have started back in 2010, that would have been absolutely amazing. I mean, when the internet was fresher and when yeah. blogging, I mean, that would have been
1: amazing. I mean, it did start for five more years. I remember, um, when I started Facebook ads, I don't remember it was 2016 and everything was working, you know, yes. <laughs> 10 cents a click, 500 subscribers and, and, you know, yeah. And then, and then that's boom, pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now well, yeah. it doesn't work anymore like that. You know, it, it's, do you, you still know. do
0: Facebook ads?
1: Yeah, but, um, I do, I do, uh, Amazon ads primarily and I'm still exclusive experiment- Two books or what? Yes. Just for books. And then I use Facebook ads a little bit, but, um, I'm finding so many other ways that are ch- the, you know, cost per lead is cheaper with things like, um, these lists like voracious readers only Insta freebie now called prolific works. You get qualified leads much cheaper than Facebook. So, uh, How do you I don't do that to- for
0: me for someone who wants to get people to buy this book and I'm giving away three free, three free online courses, Mm-hmm. For people who pre-order this book. How would you do that?
1: Are you talking about uh, Facebook or the other platforms? Anything. I mean, I, I'll shoot
0: some ads on Facebook, but like, so, what would you suggest for these other concepts? As far as like, if you wanted I'm to get a... people to pre-order this book and you're gonna give them three free online courses, how would you get, how would you get?
1: Okay, so forget all of this book marketing stuff. What's working right now for anything is live videos go live every day and then you build, um, and you go live on Instagram. You go live on Facebook. Then you upload that video to YouTube, and then you uh, you, you retarget people who watched X seconds of your video, and so you can do a, a, a bingeable video series like uh, the three, like you know the hero's journey video one, two, three, or just one video, and then, you know, you got to use about a hundred bucks uh, initially and test, test, test. And what you do is then you target people that watch the videos and, and you're gonna find out if two videos work better than three or if three work better. I mean, it's, I can't tell you all of this <laughs> right away, but, um, and I also am experimenting with this right now. Uh, I'll tell you though, that it's hard to make a buck off of a $3 book. That's why you have to have the back end. So you, you sound like you already got it with your um, courses. And yeah, I have uh,
0: back end. My main yeah. interest is, uh, yeah, I mean, I want to get 10,000 pre-orders on this book.
1: Yeah. I would do live video every day. And if you don't know what to make a video of, just document yourself. Like, Hey, right now I'm working on this, you know, go, you know, and, uh, Facebook live. Um, and then also, uh, YouTube, same exact method um, i don 't know how many followers you got on youtube i don 't i don 't remember you pretty yet. much
0: none I need to start doing
1: it oh well so that 's the problem in youtube you can 't go live unless you 've got a thousand or ten thousand I forgot so Facebook live and Instagram live has one hundred percent coverage right now you go you go live on Instagram, and all your followers will get the message instantly and um, so then what you do is you you run i don 't know what your pain threshold is, but You'll I want, control. I mean, I
0: want to start paying at least $100 a day and then up it to two or $300 a day.
1: Yeah. So you make your videos. Um, I don't know which you, your first video would be, but That's let's right. just say you it make your, matter. you make your first video and you run engagement ads to that. You, you can actually boost it for, for newbies that don't want to mess with the Facebook ads platform. Just go through your page and boost the video.
0: Yeah, I've but done that before.
1: Yeah. It's better to use the Facebook ads platform though. So then you run hundred bucks, you boost it for hundred bucks. And then you retarget people who watched it. And so you think it's
0: still valuable to do that on Facebook?
1: Oh yeah. 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 And then you upload all of that stuff to YouTube and in YouTube, you can build a funnel that says people who watched video a now watch video B and people watch video B. Now we run conversion ads to them. So, With Facebook, you got to put the pixel on your page and then you can tell Facebook, I want to run a conversion ad to this group that watched video B or C. And you can do the exact same thing on YouTube. It's just trickier. And uh, so what you can do is you you build um, like the Jeff Walker launch. The the first video is the, um, I don't don't remember. The second video is the journey. The third video is- I've watched a lot of Jeff stuff. Yeah, and so you build your three video bingeable series and, uh, the main thing is you boost the first one with a bunch of money and then you retarget the people who watched it. Basically the I love same it. thing.
0: This is brilliant. I'm, I'm yeah. so excited because I'm literally for the next eight weeks, cause the book comes out in eight weeks about yeah. to just bomb this thing. You know, I'll probably have yeah. dropping 20 grand
1: over the next two months. Ooh, okay. Remember test, test, test. Okay. Uh, because Uh, The thumb value, the rule of thumb is that it takes hundred bucks to get Facebook's algorithm to start really working for you. And that's above my pain threshold. So (laughs) with a $3 book, anyway, back to you, my friend, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to make this a marketing showdown or
0: something. Uh, I think it's awesome. I think your people will love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but it video is really hot right now because YouTube and Facebook are in a video war. So the clicks and the cost per view are just rock bottom right now. It was like Facebook in 2015 and 16. You could get CPC bids going for under five cents and, and hundred, hundred email subscribers in, in, a, in a minute, you know, I'm going to
0: do kids. a ton of videos, man. Yeah. I'm going to go wild on this and run yeah. ads to them and then and retarget those they, fools. <laughs>
1: yeah. and, and don't forget YouTube because they stay in YouTube. They stay in YouTube as an asset. See, that's why YouTube's better than Facebook. But okay, that's just a, a, a little thing. Um, <laughs> You're and, a good uh, man. You know that. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, I'm a big Frank Kern fan. I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm taking his I, uh, his branding course right now, which goes all over that stuff. But if you look at his stuff for free, you don't even need his course. You know, he he gives everything away for free. Anyways, I wanted to ask you another question. Um, I know you got to go, huh? Yeah, just ask this last one and then, I'll, then we'll call it. Okay. What was a book that changed your life? Whew. <laughs> um,
0: I mean, at different stages, different books. Um, obviously, like way back in the day, I read Spiritual Roots of Human Relations by Stephen Covey. Essentially, that's kind oh, of what yeah. became Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That was back in the day. Um, what else is really impacting me? The body keeps the score. You know, that's the book that led me to writing. Personality isn't permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read so many books these days. I just barely read a book about Abraham Lincoln's depression. All about his depression. It was called. It, it was called Lincoln's Melancholy. Great book. Um, but how yeah, do they so know about know. that?
1: How do they know about him? So. Long after the fact, how can you? Write There's
0: it? so much written about him, and he's got letters and stuff. I mean, he was a very depressed person.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he looked like it in the photos too. Yeah. That, that yeah I but see.
0: you know, but they looked at depression differently back then. You know, like he yeah. wasn't. It was not this thing that you overly categorize. I mean, he was a, a he was a, a healthy person who was also had depression every once in a while. I mean, yeah. we he didn't they didn't make it such a big deal as they do now.
1: Ben, before I let you go. Our call to action: Where do you want people to go?
0: Benjaminhardy.com. You know, so if you pre-order the book or just buy the book, whenever you're seeing this, personality isn't permanent. Uh, and then go to Benjaminhardy. Then go to Benjaminhardy.com. I will give you three free online courses. You'll get a deeper dive course into the book. You'll get a journaling course, which I've sold ten thousand copies of, which mm. will teach you all about how to journal, where to journal. I also have a genius blogging course, which uh, I've sold for over 000, eight, a thousand dollars. It's a six-hour live recording of when I taught a lot of the top marketers in the world, all of my strategies for getting a hundred million blog views, how I got my um, book proposal. I actually give in that course, the book proposal that became this book. So usually people don't give away book proposals, but I give away my book proposal for this book, explain to you how to write book proposals. If you want one, or explain how to get onto big platforms. So I give away a bunch of free stuff for people who buy
1: uh, personality isn't permanent. That's awesome. Thank you. I was we didn't get to that book. It was on the list, but maybe in, a, in another interview. If you ever so. want to
0: talk again, I'd love to, man. You're fun.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. What was it? Benjaminhardy.com. Yes, sir. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you at the top. Okay, my friends, if you like that podcast, And remember to go to zbooks.co and go get all the materials to start your authoring career. We have a seven-day challenge every week, so there's no excuse to not finish your book. And remember, please go to iTunes and upload this podcast and Google Play. Okay, I look forward to seeing you at the top.